Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Before Arnold Schwarzenegger and even before Charles Atlas, there was Eugene Sandow. Rising from obscurity in Prussia, Sandow became an international celebrity celebrity during the golden age of the strongman in the late 19th century for his amazing feats of strength and his well-sculpted physique. While Sandow wowed crowds in in the United Kingdom and the United States, He also preached a new gospel of physical fitness and well-being. Our guest today has recently published a biography of Sandow and his times. His name is David Waller, and his book is The Perfect Man, The Muscular Life and Times of Eugene Sandow, Victorian Strongman. Mr. Waller has worked as a journalist for the Financial Times and has written and published two books on business. He lives in southwest London with his wife and three children. Well, David, welcome to the show. It's great having you. Uh, it's great to be here, Brett. So you've written this uh, book about the strongman Eugene Sandow. Uh, for those who out there who are listening and have never heard of Sandow, can you kind of give a short biography? Who is he and, and, and what did he do? Of course. That would be a great pleasure. A hundred years ago, um, Eugene Sandow would have been one of the most famous people on the planet. He was famous in North America. He was famous in Great Britain. He was famous in Europe. He was famous the length and breadth of the British Empire. And he was famous for having the most extraordinary male body, obviously male body. Um, He was known in his day as the perfect man. And he celebrated for the uh, perfection of his his, uh, his body, but also for being uh, one of the strongest people on on the planet as well. Uh, He never actually said that he was the strongest man in the world, but other people made that claim for him. So that's really who he was in terms of celebrity in his heyday. Um, he was born in 1867 in uh, East Prussia, uh, in a place that is now part of Russia, uh, Königsberg. It no longer exists, actually. It's called Kaliningrad now. And that was in 1867. And he came to um, prominence in 1889 when he jumped onto a music hall stage in London and uh, entered into a, a challenge, and he won this challenge, um, and thereafter became almost overnight um, a, a celebrity on the music hall stage. In 1893, he came to North America, spent uh, a number of years over uh, in, in your part of the world, and became very cele- celebrated on the vaudeville circuit. Then he went back to London in 1897, a very rich man. He had accumulated about $250,000 of earnings by that time, wow. and with that, He set up uh, his own fitness establishment and uh, a mail-order business uh, in which he uh, 
sold the secrets of bodily perfection by mail order, and he had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of adherents all around the world. And then he went on to uh, build up uh, an even more ambitious, ambitious business empire, for example, um, manufacturing um, coffee um, and cocoa powder. And I'm afraid to say that it all went badly wrong at the time of the First World War, and his business failed, and um, after the First World War, he uh, went into obscurity, and when he died in 1925, he was actually buried in an unmarked grave in Putney Vale Cemetery in southwest London. Wow, so he was really the, the proto-Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Jack LaLanne. I mean, he, he was, he was the, one of the first people who kind of got involved in the physical fitness movement then. Yeah, he invented, um, they didn't call it physical fitness in those days, they called it physical culture. And he really was the pioneer of that. And Schwarzenegger explicitly credits some of his own training and some of his own motivation to Sandow. Sandow invented a certain exercise regime, and Schwarzenegger based his own uh, regime in his early days as a strongman, uh, as a bodybuilder, on Sandow's recommendations. And as you'll know, that if you win the Mr. Atlas uh, bodybuilding uh, competition, you get a Sandow statuette, that is a little statue of Stando, uh, not wearing very many clothes, but he had this kind of this, this body that is still to this day celebrated in, in those circles. Uh, Charles Atlas also uh, owed uh, debt to Sando, so he really was uh, the very first person to be anything more than, if you like, a, a kind of circus strongman. So, I mean, what that's one of the impressions I got when I was reading this book was that what Sandow was doing was something new, uh, it was bizarre. I mean, the whole idea of shaping your body and being obsessed about your, you know, your muscles and exercising and nutrition, that it was sort of a, a novelty uh, and during the Victorian times. What was the state of physical culture, as you said, around the turn of the century? And how did Sandow change the conversation about it and, or get people excited about physical fitness? He started off as um, a, a, like a circus strongman. He wasn't actually on the circus stage, but he had performed in, in musical, which is popular culture uh, at its most uh, lively. Um, in London, there were four or five hundred of these musicals, and the American equivalent was, of course, vaudeville. And, and there were many strongmen, and, and what you had to do was to keep your audience entertained by doing feats of strength um, and just being ever more ingenious in lifting up people sitting on a piano, for example, or elephants, or um, cannons. He found out at one point balanced a cannon on his nose. So in his early days, he was kind of like a showman. But what he did, um, quite remarkably, was take the celebrity that he won from the stage to, uh, to propagate this philosophy of physical culture. And, and, and this was very scientific. He had uh, what appears to be a very detailed knowledge of anatomy. Uh, he claimed to have studied uh, at a university in Germany. We don't know whether that's actually true. But he knew the name of all the muscles in the body and he had a philosophy which was that basically, if you exercise a little and a lot in a very controlled fashion, using a dumbbell, we'll come back to that, but he recommended that you use his own patented dumbbell, that with a relatively small investment of time and effort, you could actually change the way you looked, change your shape, and in fact, transform your whole personality. And I mean, this is a very modern concept, that by, by, by exercising, in the privacy of your own room, this wasn't something you did in the gym particularly, it was something you could do at home, you could actually look like him. So he, what he did was he turned his own body, not just his name, but his own body into a kind of global brand. 
And his message was, look, if you follow my regime, you too can look like me. Hmm. And, and, and one of the things I, I remember reading that I thought was really interesting was how um, the the British military were, they were concerned about the, the fitness level of, of British men. Um, and you know, at this point, they were trying to manage a, a vast empire. And they were concerned that British men weren't up to the task of, of doing that because they're just so out of shape. I mean, did, did people just not exercise back then? I mean, was that, I mean, did they not really think about that? They just, what was their idea of physical fitness before Sandow came in and actually showed them his scientific approach to physical culture? Well, people clearly played sport. Uh, and the kind of sport that you pursued did depend on your social class. So upper-class men would go hunting, for example, or they would fence. Uh, or working-class men would play football. And in parts of the colonies, like uh, New Zealand in particular, people would play rugby even in those days. But what people didn't do was train in, in a systematic way to achieve physical fitness. And Sandow made this distinction between recreational exercise, so in other words, the exercise you get when running around a football pitch, and this kind of disciplined, scientific exercise, which had a very clear objective of increasing um, your physical fitness. So that was, that was his philosophy. Now, how did that touch on uh, the needs of the British nation at this time? Of course, in the late 1890s, Britain had the biggest empire that the world had ever seen. But why were they worried? They were worried because, firstly, there were challenges to their power wherever they turned, but in particular, in South Africa, um, and this was the time of the Second Boer War. And um, this was a, a challenge to uh, British power from uh, a, a, a race of uh, farmers, uh, outdoors, tough, wiry, Boer farmers who were of Dutch uh, origins. And they very, came very close to defeating the British Empire and humiliating the British Empire in a whole series of battles in, in, in uh, 1900 early 1900. And to your point, when Britain looked for volunteers among its own population, there were many, many tens of thousands of men who wanted to sign up and go and fight. But their physical condition turned out to be quite appalling. Uh, and it was especially true of kind of working class men uh, from the cities like Manchester in the north of England, for example, and also London, of course. These people had a very poor diet. They didn't really do any sport or exercise at all. They were much shorter than people who were of higher social economic status. So up to half the um, volunteers um, from Manchester, for example, were turned down on the basis that they were not physically fit. So Sandow came along and said, well, I can help this nation. If you follow my exercises, I can turn these weaklings into paragons of strength. So something somewhat ironic, because, of course, Sandow himself was not British. He wasn't even a British citizen at this point. He came from Germany. But he was helping Britain to uh, become uh, more effective as a, as a military machine. Hmm. Um, so earlier you talked about how Sandow got his start as a stage show strongman. And I, I, I find this whole aspect of the time period just very fascinating, the whole, this whole aspect of popular culture during Victorian times. There was this obsession yeah. with strongman. I, and I, it's one of those, I guess, iconic images of the, the man in the leotard with the handlebar mustache lifting up you know, a dumbbell that says 1,000 pounds. How much of that, you know, stage, those feats of strength, how much of that was actually Sandow, a display of his strength, and how much of it was a little bit of, you know, wink-wink showmanship going on there? Well, that's a very good question. There was a lot of showmanship. 
But um, it's interesting that, that Harry Houdini, um, who was no stranger to showmanship himself, actually investigated the whole question of stage strongman. And he came to the conclusion, actually, that Sandow was not a fraud. There were other people who were often caught out uh, being fraudulent. So they would have uh, dumbbells uh, that, were, that were hollow, and they would pretend that they were very heavy. Or they would have machines uh, that, that it, would, it would look as though they were lifting up a horse, but actually they were uh, using mechanical aid um, to, to help them with that. But Sandow, Sandow, he was intelligent. He had served some time um, in a circus. He knew all about um, putting together an act which looked exciting and looked convincing and, um, and, and deployed tricks as well as just outright strength. So, for example, one of his party pieces was to uh, lift up a man who was sitting playing uh, a piano. Uh, and he lifted up the, the man and the piano, and he carted them off stage, uh, uh, apparently um, with uh, just using one arm, one hand and one arm. And there was a trick to this, because what he did was he put his hand behind the piano, and there was a handle specially built where he could kind of slip his, his forearm in there and, and lift it up. Now, it was still an incredible feat of strength, but it wasn't quite the naked um, show of force that the audience might have seen. And, and there were other examples. I mean, he was very good at supporting uh, very heavy weights. So what he'd do is he'd lie on his back and put his chest and torso uh, upwards, and they would put uh, a plank uh, or a platform on, on top of him. And on top of this, they would then load up uh, people, all the equipment on the stage, sometimes actual wheel horses, uh, cannons when he was pretending to be uh, doing a military scene. And, and they'd load up you know, more than a ton weight would go on his uh, upturned stomach. And he could hold on to that. He couldn't lift it, but he could certainly support it. And uh, just another example, um, Edison, Thomas Edison, filmed uh, Sandow in an early visit to the U.S., I think it was about 1896. And Sandow is doing um, um, full um, somersaults from a standing start, holding um, two, I think they're 56-pound dumbbells, so one in each hand. And he's, doing, um, um, he's doing somersaults uh, with that. And there was nothing fake about that. He was, he was very strong, he was very gifted, and he was very elegant. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Why do you think, in just your research in, in the book, in the Times, why were these strongman shows so popular? I mean, why, why did someone like Sandow become an international celebrity? Well, I think, I mean, there were lots of stage strongmen, um, 
most of in fact, nearly all of them never did anything more than uh, this kind of um, show on the musical or vaudeville stage. Sandow went a lot further than that, and I think he was one of the very first um, celebrities to, if you like, leverage the power of uh, the new media, the new technology that was available in, in, in those days. I mean, it's kind of quite a modern story. He, he became famous in Britain, and rather like a kind of pop group today, he, he realized that he had to go to America to really achieve global play, fame. He went there, and because of the power of photography, and because of um, the telegraph, um, and, uh, and um, because of the increasing um, proliferation of, of new media, uh, there were thousands of new magazines and newspapers in the 1890s catering to um, the growing population's love of news and story. Sandow was able to use you know, what we call modern public relations techniques to make his own name um, very popular, very, very well known. And, uh, and that, that's how he built up a brand. So he saw the opportunity where other people were content to earn a living on stage. He, saw, he, he decided to go a lot further than that and build a business on the back of his stage name. And in the interviews that he did towards the end of the 1890s and in the, in the early years of uh, the last century, he, he said, look, he, he said, I don't, I don't really see myself as, as a showman anymore. I, I'm much more... Have a much more serious mission. This is the education of the population in, in into the philosophy and practice of physical culture. But I do my shows in order to keep uh, myself and my you didn't use the word brand, but my name and, and my methodology in in the forefront of people's minds. So it was a bit like a kind of you know a rap star today, perhaps, um, or or a film star who saw opportunities to do more than just appear on stage and make music or, or, or act. Throughout your book, you have pictures of Sandow just doing various poses, displaying off his amazing physique. Um, but he's like pretty much naked. Like the only thing he has on a lot of these pictures is like is, is a leaf that's covering up yeah. his bits and pieces. And a lot of these, what I thought was fascinating, a lot of these images that there were photos that were taken of him were published in magazines. But the irony is that this was done kind of at the height of you know Victorian times with all and all the modesty and decorum that came with that. How was it that Sandow was able to you know pose half naked or pretty much naked and not receive a lot of scorn for that? Well, uh, it's an extremely good question, and I think what this exposes uh, more than just his uh, near nakedness, as it were, is some of the uh, double standards of the, the Victorian era. I mean. You know, in the 1890s, for example, um, for the first time ever on the British stage, uh, did the public get to see uh, a naked uh, ankle, a woman's ankle, and that caused a great scandal. So how come, when it was scandalous to see uh, a, a, a lady's ankle on stage, could he get away with being near naked? I think there are a number of observations. Firstly, he always cloaked himself in the language of um, classical... Uh, art and sculpture, and he said, look, look at me, because I turn my body into uh, the literal embodiment of, of classical sculpture. And at the time, there was enormous reverence for everything to do with ancient Rome and Greece. And the fact that he could pose, as he did, uh, in, in the shape of the dying gladiator or Discobulus, these, these great classical statues, gave the whole thing a kind of aura of uh, almost academic respectability. I mean, that, that's one observation. The other point was, he always made sure to associate himself with doctors and soldiers 
and other respectable people who gave the fact that he was taking his clothes off this kind of uh, you know, veneer of respectability. Uh, it was part of, if you like, almost like a public health project. Um, and then the other point was that, that things were a little racier in your part of the world than they were in Great Britain. He only really started taking all his clothes off, more or less, when he went to America and he met, and he met Florence Ziegfeld. Ziegfeld, of course, is well-known for Ziegfeld's follies, but at the time of the Chicago World Exposition, in, um, or the Columbia World Exposition, rather, in 1893, um, Ziegfeld, um, Ziegfeld's first triumph um, in, 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 in his career was with Sandow. And Sandow was encouraged to take even more clothes off, and, uh, and, and he was quite clearly um, sexy. It was designed to appeal uh, particularly to the female audience. And in Chicago and Washington and New York and other big American cities, he would hold these kind of special sessions for society ladies who would come backstage after the main show and would be allowed, for the sake, they'd have to pay a little bit extra fee for this, they would be allowed to kind of prod his muscles and kind of stroke the muscles and so forth. And, and, and again, because these society ladies, like um, Mrs. Pullman uh, from Chicago, and the various senators' wives from Washington, because they went along, the whole thing became acceptable. But I think it was very clever um, marketing, in a way, to make the whole thing risque without attracting real condemnation. And yeah. make one other observation. Oh, one observation. In 1901, um, the British Museum, the Natural History Museum in Britain, decided uh, to make a, a plaster cast of his body uh, as the perfect example of the Caucasian man. Um, the, the Anglo-Saxon man. And, and this uh, plaster cast, um, which, by the way, you can still see if you uh, make a special application, it's hidden away in the cellar of the museum, but this was designed to show off these kind of, uh, this perfect body. And, uh, and this was for scientific purposes. It had the backing of very, very dis various very distinguished scientists. But after about six weeks of this naked statue being on display at the museum, um, the more conservative elements in British society um, caused it to be removed. There was a little bit of a scandal, um, and uh, it was it was taken down. So it wasn't quite. He didn't always get away with with it, but he nearly always got away with it. Yeah, I thought that was some of the most interesting parts in the book, where you describe these private showings with these society women, and just you know, they're they're at first they're very timid to do it, and then you know they would start off with a, a their glove on their hand and you know touches muscles, and then. They'd have the glove off, and they'd be swooning and fainting, and they'd be smelling salts. I mean, it was just, I thought it was really funny. Um, kind yeah, of it's, incred it's incredible that he could get away with it. I mean, I can read a little quote. This is from an American newspaper. Whenever he went, mobs paid dollars to see, and after the mobs had looked their fill, there were private seances to which nice people went, first in secret, and then in brazen bravado. Always ladies were present, and always their private amazement was recorded in the dispatches. But though they, though they amazed, they tarried, and though coyly fearful for a time, they managed to repress their terror for a time and test the great muscles with a delicately gloved forefinger. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how, how times have changed. And I guess Sandow was part of, I, in some sense, he kind of began the liberalization of sexuality in the West. I say. think that's right. I mean, he himself uh, steered clear of, um, you know, getting caught out in, in sexual liaisons. Um, Lillian Russell uh, seems to have made an advance um, to him, which he turned down. 
he was he was he was very controlled, um, very scrupulous. I think he knew that if he got a reputation for being a philanderer, um, you know, that would do him harm with the general public. So he he, he worked very hard uh, to uh, preserve uh, his respectability. And of course, uh, he got married in the late 1890s um, to Blanche. Um, and, and after that, really, uh, he, he led what appeared to be quite a respectable married life um, for a considerable period of time. What you've said so far, and especially in your biography at the very beginning, you talked about how he was an international celebrity. He was known across the world in the United Kingdom, in the United States. He was an international celebrity, a brand in and of himself. But we, most people uh, don't, haven't really heard about Sandow. Uh, and in fact, he was buried in an unmarked grave. Why is it that we don't hear that much about Sandow today? Well, and by the way, the unmarked grave is about a mile away from where I'm sitting. I, I live in Wimbledon. I'm sitting, I'm talking to you from Wimbledon, very close to the uh, tennis. Um, and just across Wimbledon Common uh, is the Putney Grave Cemetery. And that's where he was buried. And a couple of years ago, actually, um, some, some uh, supporters, some uh, fans of his, did cause uh, a monument to be erected um, to uh, remember his name. But for uh, all of the last century, he was uh, unmemorialized. And I think, you know, it, does, it clearly does raise a question. I think, you know, the short, the one question is, what, what did he do to upset his wife, his widow, Blanche, and his two daughters? And we just don't know. But clearly, they wanted nothing to do with his reputation. And within, he was dead uh, one day, two days later he was buried, and then within a month they sold everything in the, in the family house and very soon afterwards, um, Mrs. Sandow uh, moved out of London, and, and no one ever heard from her again. So, I mean, there are all sorts of stories about what he might have done um, to, to upset her. I mean, other widows, of course, would go to an enormous amount of trouble to celebrate the memory of their loved ones, but she, she did exactly the opposite. So that was one fact. I mean, she just wasn't around promoting Sandow's name. But I think, you know, the bigger question is, you know, what happens to these icons of popular culture um, over time? And I think the fact is that no matter how celebrated you were, and perhaps no, no matter how celebrated you are, in due course you're going to be forgotten. It's rather sad, but it's something very human. Um, and um, people, the specialists, so the bodybuilders, um, uh, you know, like Charles Atlas and ultimately Schwarzenegger, they knew all about him, and, so, and professional bodybuilders to this day will know all about him. But his reputation with the general public um, faded away. I mean, I have to say, you know, there, there are references to him aplenty in the literature of the time. So from James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, there's a lot of mention of him in there, um, to uh, various novels by uh, Ian Forster, for example. Um, you know, wherever you turn, he's written about, but, but, which shows how popular he was at the time. But I think, you know, by, you know, by the time he reached his own 50s, he died when he was 57, so quite young. Um, but by that time, his, his, his tremendous physique was fading, He'd become mortal, um, and I think people were less interested in knowing about someone who, who really didn't have the secret of, of eternal life after all. So uh, this is a, a blog and a podcast about masculinity and manliness. Um, what legacy did Sandow have on masculinity and manliness, uh, particularly in the West? What, what is it? How how we've changed our idea of manliness because of him? Well, I think one one point. Uh, he emerged at, at a crucial time in the history of, of masculinity. It was almost exactly the point that the American West disappeared. Um, it was also the time when um, Western Europe 
was in the midst of a, a profound um, uh, period of industrialization. And if you like, the role of a man in those days, a change from being someone who had to uh, fight for a living on the frontier, defending his family uh, from threats, uh, building a log cabin, uh, killing, killing what you eat, as it were, a, a man had had to become tamed and become um, uh, civilized and, and capable of living in society, often in cities, with lots of other people around. And essentially, if you like, a less uh, vigorous, perhaps a less violent sort of existence. And Sandow's proposition was, look, um, you know, if you follow my exercise program, you, you too can be a real man. You can be a real man within the constraints of society as it became more confining and more industrialized. And, and he had a particular pitch for the working man, the man who had to go to the office, who had to commute, um, who, who didn't have much time or, or, and lived in the suburbs and didn't have much space for exercise. And the pitch was, look, if you do these exercises, just 19 of them every day for 20 to 25 minutes, you're going to transform your physique. You're going to become a little bit more perfect, a little bit more like me. So it was empowering, and it was empowering in a way that appealed to, um, you know, the evolving modern man. I think there's one other consideration. It was also about posing. It was about showing off. Um, it was about looking in the mirror. One of the things he encouraged people to do was to look in the mirror when they were exercising. It helped increase concentration, he said. But it was also about taking pride in looking good uh, and, and having the right kind of shape. So I think that's quite modern. So I see him as, if you like, the patron saint uh, of modern exercise today. Not just gym exercise, but, you know, people who go for a jog. I mean, unconsciously owe an awful lot to Sandow's desire to to put the whole business of exercise onto a kind of scientific footing. Very good. Well, David, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, it's been fantastic to talk to you too. Our guest today was David Waller. David is the author of the book, The Perfect Man, The Muscular Life and Times of Eugene Sandow, Victorian Strongman. You can find more information about David's work at victorianstrongman.com. And you can pick up a copy of his book, The Perfect Man, at Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly.